All right, now, brothers and sisters, let's open our Bibles together. I ask you to take yours out and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start here in just a moment in verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. As we get there, let me ask you a question. Do you remember how you learned how to swim? Now, some of you might never have done so, but for those of you who did, do you remember that? Kids, do you guys remember how you learned how to swim? Do you remember when that happened? Do you remember perhaps taking some classes or working with your parents at a pool? I remember kind of vaguely, it's kind of fuzzy in my mind, but I know it's there. I remember taking classes at the YMCA in, in Owensboro. And there were times during that swim class when I was just super afraid, and then there were times where I was super excited. I remember when I learned how to swim. <clears throat> but what I really want to know is this. Did any of you guys learn how to swim by your dad chucking you into the deep end before you even knew? Did anybody learn like that? You always hear about that. I, I've never met someone who actually learned like that. I've, I've met some people who claim it for stories and stuff, but you know, they'll say, my, my dad just chucked me into the deep end before I was even ready to swim. And I learned how to swim because if I didn't, I was going to drown, right? Well, that's kind of what we're doing today with our text. We are getting chucked into the deep end right away by Paul. You see, last week we started our Ephesians series, and we, we did the first two verses. And now we've got verse 3 through verse 14, and Paul is just throwing us right into the deep end. I mean, that's exactly what he, that's the only way I know how to describe it. He's throwing us into the deep end and saying, you're going to learn how to swim, because it just immediately, in this letter, gets as deep as it gets. And you'll see this as we read through, but we're going to have to spend probably three weeks on verses 3 through 14. So next week, our text, Lord willing, will be the same, and probably the week after that, because there's just so much here in this passage. You know, one interesting thing about verses 3 through 14 right here in Ephesians is it's one long run-on sentence in the original Greek. One long run-on sentence. No periods until you get to the end of verse 14. It's the longest sentence in the Bible. And some have even called it the greatest sentence ever written. Now, of course, if you keep going, run on, run on, run on, run on, you can make your sentence a little better than it was if it was short and concise. But this is one long run-on sentence. And we're going to read the whole thing, probably over the next three weeks, we'll read the whole thing each time, and each time we'll bring out different aspects of it. But let's read our text. This is the Word of God from the Apostle Paul through the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 3, Ephesians 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, did any of you have a hard time staying with Paul during that? Have a hard time really paying attention and comprehending everything he says? I do sometimes when I read this passage of scripture because he piles phrase upon phrase, proposition upon proposition, each building on the last and each somehow connected to the last and he does it so many times you kind of get lost in all of it like for instance look at verse 7 watch just how many of these phrases he keeps piling on verse 7 he says in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the full you see he's just piling it on But one thing that I don't want you to miss here is that even though this feels like drinking from a fire hose, right? It feels like that's what we're doing. We're drinking from a fire hose. I want you to see how Paul is almost lost in worship as he writes this. I mean, just lost in worship. It's like he can't contain himself. It's just spilling out of him faster than he can even write it down. Have you ever been so excited to explain something to someone else? That, that you just started going, and pretty soon you didn't even know it, but you were rambling, you were going on and on, and, and you had lost the people around you, and, and at one point you just come to yourself and realize, oh, they're not with me anymore. I'm so excited about this thing that they're not as excited about, and I'm just going on and on. You ever do that? I mean, perhaps I, I do it sometimes with the Bible, but you, you just get lost in it, and pretty soon you realize, oh, I, I just left everybody in the dust. Well, it seems kind of like that's what Paul's doing here. He's just consumed with worship. He's overflowing with worship, and it's coming out of him faster than he can even write it down. It's a glorious passage of scripture, and like I said, we're probably going to have to spend multiple weeks on this. But this week, I want to focus in on what he says about predestination. Predestination. Notice how in verse 5, Paul says that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Notice how in verse 11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And even though he doesn't use the word, he he speaks of the concept in verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Predestination. That's what we're talking about. Like I said, we're jumping into the deep end. Now, this isn't as confusing as some people make it out to be. The word predestined simply means that God decided, before the world and the universe ever began, God decided that something would happen at a certain time. That's all predestined means. 
God could predestine all number of things to happen. For example, before the, the world was made, when God decided to make this world that he made, he predestined that Jesus would die on the cross for the sins of the world. Before the universe was ever made, God predestined that Jesus would return. He has predestined that Jesus will return on a day that he knows, but we don't, right? We don't know what's going to happen, but he knows exactly when that's going to happen. Now, how can God do this, let's ask? How can God, before the universe is ever made, decide that something will happen? How can he guarantee that something will happen in some future moment? Well, there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, it's because he's so powerful, right? He's so powerful, he can do anything he wants. He can make anything happen that he wants. But also, it's because God, our God that we serve, can see the future. God knows what's going to happen in the future. He has what we call foreknowledge. He can see into the future, and he can see things as they happen before they happen. And he saw it all the moment he decided to make the world that he made. God knew before he created the universe that Adam and Eve would eat that fruit. He knew it. God knew before he created the universe that Columbia Christian Church would exist in the form that it exists right now. And he knew every single person that would be at this worship service. God knows what's going to happen later today. Now, we think we know what's going to happen later today, right? We've got some idea about our plans for later today, but God knows exactly what's going to happen, right? None of us can see the future. It'd be a, a neat superpower if we could, but none of us can see the future, but God can. And he can see the future perfectly. And so since God knows the future, and since God knows everything that's going to happen, and he's so powerful, he can predestine stuff to happen before the foundations of the world. Now, this doctrine of predestination is an often misunderstood doctrine because there are varying opinions or interpretations as to what it means. Some people believe that when it says God predestines us, some people believe this means that before the foundations of the world, God decided that some people would go to hell and some people would go to heaven. And he elected some people to be his chosen people, but others, he just didn't choose them. And it's not based on anything that they would do, it's just unconditional. You might have heard this spoken of sometimes as the doctrine of unconditional election. That before the foundation of the world, God just made an arbitrary choice. These people are going to heaven, and these people are going to hell. And let's hope you're in that first group, because if you're not, there's nothing you can do about it. Now, I want you to know that I have friends who believe this. I know people who believe this, and they are Bible-believing Christians. Right? So what I am not up here saying is that there's some people who believe this and they're just a bunch of crazies who don't read their Bibles. That's not what I'm saying. We've got a different interpretation of the Bible. Okay, I would encourage you to look at the evidence in the text and decide for yourself. But I will tell you what I think God's word is teaching on this today. But like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, do not just take a preacher's word for it. Go to the text yourself. Go to the Bible yourself and decide for yourself what the Bible says and what it means. Interpret for yourself, even as you use your brothers and sisters in Christ around you to help you interpret the Bible. 
But I submit to you today that what we just talked about, God deciding unconditionally who would be going to heaven and who would be going to hell before the foundations of the world, I submit to you that's not what the text says. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 does say he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, but to what end? What did he choose us before the foundation of the world for? Or so that. Look at the, the that connector word in verse 4. It says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless before him. You know what that means? That means that even though I am a sinner, and I have sinned, and even though I probably will sin again, that God looks down and sees me as holy and blameless. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Some of the most wonderful news in the whole world today is that you can be holy and blameless before God. And the way to do it is not trying super hard. The way to do it is not making sure you memorize every commandment in the Bible and doing them to a T. You won't last very long trying to do that. The way to be holy and blameless before God is to come to Jesus Christ and to have his blood cover over your sins. And God predestined before the foundation of the world that anyone who would do that, anyone who would come to Jesus in faith and become a Christian would be seen in God's eyes as holy and blameless because the blood of Jesus covers them. Look at what it says in verse 5. In verse 5, it does not say he predestined us to believe. It does not say he predestined us to have faith in Christ. What does it say? He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Adoption. Right? We know adoption, right? The, the, wonderful, the wonderful grace of adoption is that two parents can, can bring a child into their family who is not by nature, biologically, part of their family, and then all of a sudden that kid becomes part of their family just as much as a biological child, right? It's a wonderful grace and it's a wonderful ministry. It's a wonderful way to act out the gospel in this world when you can adopt someone into your family. This is why Christians have led the way in the adoption industry for so many decades. But it does not say we were predestined to believe. It does not say we were predestined to put our faith in Christ. No, we were predestined for adoption. So what that means is anybody who comes to Jesus, God predestined before the foundation of the world, anyone who comes to Jesus, I will adopt into my family. Again, it's the greatest news. It's just the, the greatest news. My favorite verse in all the Bible, I think, is 1 John 3, 1, where it says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It is an extraordinary privilege that God calls me one of his children, that he has adopted me into his family. This is what he predestined. Now remember, we talked about the way that God can predestine things is according to the fact that he knows the future. He knows what will happen in the future. And that's really important here, really important. Because what he's doing is he's predestining adoption and the holy and blameless status for anyone who he foresees will put their faith in Jesus. 
He is not forcing anyone to put their faith in Jesus. He simply sees it in the future and decides anyone who does that will be adopted into my family. Anyone who does that will be holy and blameless in my sight. It actually says this. It connects predestination and God's foreknowledge in Romans 8.29. Look at the screens with me. Romans 8.29. This is an important verse here. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God foreknew those that he predestined. He foreknows whoever will put their faith in Jesus. God sees everything happen. He sees everything play out the second he decides to make the world he makes. And so he sees everybody who will make a decision to come to Jesus Christ. Everyone who will come to Jesus in faith. And foreknowing who those are, he predestines that they will be conformed to the image of his son, that they will be adopted into his family, that they will be looked upon as holy and blameless. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 actually say the same thing. Peter says that there are people who are God's elect, but they are God's elect according to foreknowledge, according to his foreknowledge. And so do not make the mistake of seeing that word predestination and concluding that it means that some people are just predestined to go to hell. No, that is not what it means. Predestination is a biblical doctrine. We're not going to avoid it. We're not going to act like it's not in the Bible. It's right there. It's a biblical doctrine, but it's important that we go by what the text actually says. If you become a follower of Jesus, God decided before the foundations of the world before the universe was ever made, that you would be counted holy and blameless, that you would be adopted into his family if you become a follower of Jesus. And so we, we plead with all today. This is our message. Would you become a follower of Jesus? Have you done that? Have you become a follower of Christ? Have you become a Christian? Have you put your faith in Jesus and confessed your sins and repented and been baptized into his name. If you haven't, the promise here is that God says, if, if you do, you will be adopted into his family. If you do, you will be looked on by God as holy and blameless. No blame. Forgiven of all of your sins. You can have that if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus and become a Christian. Now, I want you to notice also in this passage that we just read <clears throat> how Paul keeps repeating this phrase and this idea over and over again, the will or the purpose of God. The will or the purpose of God. Look back in your text, in your Bibles. Go to verse 1 with me. Verse 1. Now, this is last week's text, but notice how Paul says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, right? And then verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Then look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 10. A plan for the fullness of time. Verse 11. The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We said last week, since all scripture is God-breathed, and all of these words are God's words that he intended to be in the Bible, anytime something is repeated, we should perk up. 
and pay attention and think God is, is stressing something. God is emphasizing something. He is emphasizing his will or his purpose. For instance, in verse 11, he says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, we've got to ask ourselves, what does that mean, though? What does it mean that God works all things according to the counsel of his will? Does this mean that every single thing that happens on the earth is the will of God? Is that what it means? It says he works all things according to the purpose or the counsel of his will. Is everything that happens on this earth the will of God? Let's think about some atrocious evil like the Holocaust. Was the Holocaust the will of God? Was it the will of God for that to happen? Or let's think just even in our own communities. Recently, the tornadoes earlier this month and the death that resulted and the destruction that resulted. Was it God's will for that to happen? Now, that's not as easy of a question as you might think. You think about something like the Holocaust and you say immediately, of course that wasn't God's will. Why would it ever be God's will? For someone to do that to someone else. For someone to suffer like that innocently, right? And yet, God has control of all things. God could stop anything from happening that has ever happened and yet they happen, right? You, you see how this is, this is a tough question, but perhaps this could clarify it a bit for us. Was it God's will for Adam and Eve to eat the fruit from that forbidden tree? Was it God's will for them to sin against him and break his commandment? Well, of course it wasn't. Of course it wasn't God's will, but did it happen? Yes, it did. It wasn't God's will, and yet it happened. There are some things that happen in this world that are not God's desire or God's will. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God does not wish that any should perish. But do they? Do people perish eternally? Yes, they do, they have. And yet it's not God's will. And so how are we supposed to understand this God who works everything according to the counsel of his will and yet things happen that are outside of his will that are not his will? Well, we get a lot of help here from the early chapters of the book of Job. Do you remember the story of Job in the Old Testament? In the book of Job, very Interestingly, Satan comes up to approach God. So apparently God allows Satan to approach him at times. And Satan and God have a conversation. I mean, that right by itself is extraordinarily interesting to me. But God says, what have you been doing? And Satan says, I've, I've been roaming to and fro throughout the earth. And then God says, without, without Satan ever mentioning Job's name, God says, have you considered my servant Job? He's faithful to me. He's strong. He trusts in me. And Satan says, yeah, yeah, yeah. He only trusts in you because you've treated him nice. You've given him all this stuff. It's easy. Make his life hard and he won't trust you so long. And God says, okay then. We can test this out. Satan, I give you permission to take away the blessings that I've given him. But you cannot touch him, right? It's the first thing God says. And what proceeds to happen? Satan goes... And under God's permission, takes away Job's livelihood, all of his livestock, all of his wealth, and even his children. It actually says his children 
die in a house from the result of a tornado. Now, did God do those things? No, it was Satan. It's clearly Satan that did those things. But could God have stopped it? Yes. Did God permit those things to happen? Yes. Did God give Satan permission for those things to happen? Yes. And when Job's wife tells him to curse God and die, he says, you're speaking like a foolish person. Shall we receive the good from the Lord and not the bad? It says, he, Job even says, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. And so there's this combination, right? Of something not being the Lord's will or not being the Lord's doing and yet he's sovereign over all. We believe in a God who is perfectly good and perfectly holy and would never cause anyone to sin. He is not the author of sin and yet he has given us free will to either choose him or reject him. Some people sometimes ask, if God is so good, where does evil come from? It comes from the fact that he created a world of people with free will who could choose him or reject him. And when we reject God, that's where evil comes from. Evil is the absence of God. Evil is the rejection of God. And God has, in his purpose and in his wisdom, which we do not always understand, he's given us free will to either choose him or reject him. God is so powerful and so wise and so all-knowing that he can give human beings genuine free will and yet still work out all things according to the counsel of his will. He can still make it to where his overall plan comes to pass. You see, God's plan, God's purpose cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. You can disobey God's will for your life. For instance, it's God's will that you be holy that you follow Jesus, that you have a church family, that you selflessly serve others. You can disobey those things. But when it comes to God's overall purpose and plan for the world and for history, it will come to pass. You can take it to the bank. It will happen. His plans cannot be stopped or thwarted. And so that leads us to ask, well then what is God's overall plan? What is God's purpose? Now here in Ephesians, it clearly involves people. It clearly involves people. Verses 4 and 5 tell us that God wants a family. He wants a family full of holy and blameless people. That's God's purpose. Verses 11 and 14 tell us he wants to give these people an inheritance, right? And so we put all this together. You could say that God's plan is to create people to be in his holy family and to give those people fellowship with himself and blessing and love for all eternity. God's plan is to create people to be in his holy family and to give those people fellowship with himself and blessing and love for all eternity. And so when it says in verse 11 that he works all things according to the counsel of his will, he's working all things toward that end. To have a family for himself that he can bless. Do you want to be a part of it? Do you want to be a part of God's family? Because God has predestined that he will have a family, right? But he leaves it up to us whether or not we join that family. Do you want to be a part of God's family? Because I'm here to tell you, he is waiting to lavish on his children 
all of the riches of his kindness in an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. An inheritance that is greater and more satisfying than the richest, most amazing inheritance that anyone is ever going to receive from their family members here on earth. You can be a part of that. Now, I intentionally left one little part out of that description of God's ultimate plan. I intentionally left out this part. That God created the universe, the earth, and everything in the earth, including us, for his glory. God has done all things for his glory. And we see this in the text from three different places. He repeats this phrase again. Look at verse 6. This is all to the praise, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then look at verse 12. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And then at the end of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. All things exist for the praise of his glory. Everything that God does is toward the goal of receiving praise and glory. This is the reason you exist This is the reason the universe exists. It's the reason for all things, the glory of God. We read about this in places like Isaiah 43, verse 7, where it talks about, this is God speaking, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You were made for God's glory. You were created. He formed you so that he could glorify himself through you. Later in that same chapter, Isaiah 43, 21, God speaks of the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. God forms people for himself so that they will praise him. Everything exists for the glory and praise of God. Jesus says this to the woman at the well. If you remember in his conversation with the Samaritan woman, he says that God is seeking a certain type of worshipers. God is seeking worshipers. That's what he wants. That's why Jesus came to the earth. That's why Jesus died. So that God could get worshipers for himself. Everything is for the glory of God. Your birth, your death, Everything that happens on this earth that God allows, every one that has been created on this earth, and perhaps the pinnacle of it all, the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection three days later is all for the glory of God. God is glorifying himself. And the question is, will you glorify him voluntarily now? Or will you bow the knee And glorify him at the judgment, even though you didn't during your life. Everything exists for the glory of God. This is why you were made. Consequently, you will not find satisfaction in your heart until you line your heart up with the purpose for which it was made. In the fourth century, Augustine gave one of perhaps the the most well-known quotes in Christian history where he said, He was speaking to God in a prayer that he wrote down, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. He said, God made us for himself. In our hearts, they will be restless until they find their rest in him. 
In other words, human beings can look for love and acceptance and satisfaction in all kinds of places on this earth, but you will never find it until you find the Lord because he made you that way. He created you that way, and he is calling you back to himself through his son Jesus and saying, you can finally find rest. You can finally find satisfaction in your heart. No more disappointment. No more letdown. You can finally find it in me. Come to me through Jesus. It's all for the glory of God. You were made for the glory of God. I was made for the glory of God. We're here for the glory of God. We're going to go here in just a few moments to the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. Right now, I want to spend some time in silent prayer. We do this every week here at Columbia Christian, where we offer a few moments after the service or after the sermon, and what we ask everyone to do is to go to the Lord and respond to the message. Respond to the word that he has just given to you. It will be different for every single one of us, because we're all so unique and so different, and the way that God speaks to us is not always the same. And so we ask that you go to the Lord now in prayer and respond to him In whatever way you need to, we'll give a few moments for that. And then after we pray silently, individually, we'll come back together. We'll have an invitation time where anyone who needs to respond to God's word publicly can do so. So let's pray together.